This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of Fight Back from the week that was. Till death do us part. Individuals pledge this to their spouse as they begin a marriage together. But what happens when an elderly couple is forced to split up when one needs to go into long-term care? A private member's bill is receiving attention at Queen's Park. It's now being reviewed by a committee with a goal of keeping elderly couples together in long-term care. This was among the topics of discussion when our Zoomer squad got together this past Monday. Bob Comsick filled in for Libby Snymer and was joined by Zoomer Magazine's senior editor, Peter Mugridge, Zoomer Media Vice President, David Kravitz, and Marissa Lennox, Senior Policy Officer at CARP, A New Vision of Aging. This is a situation that many couples in in Canada face when one spouse qualifies for long-term care and the other doesn't, they're often separated, or when both partners require care and they both qualify, but they're put in separate homes. I know that we've heard from our own CART members who've been together for some 60 or 70 years and are told at a time in their life when they ought to stay together, that they need to be separated into different homes. And there's nothing that we can do about it, but to shine light on this situation. And it is a bit of a crisis. Now, I think that it speaks to a larger issue in our healthcare system, which is that it was not built, it was not equipped to deal with the needs of an aging population. And this is just one example of that. Here we are. And, you know, there's the whole, and Marissa, you pointed out how there's like 35,000 in this province who are on a wait list. And David, uh, that the the problem is you've got people that want to be together, but maybe not both of them are ill. Well, that's so right. and everyone's vying for a select number of beds, and you can't accommodate everyone. Well, that's the whole problem here: is that the sentiment behind the bill, the objectives of the bill, are impossible to object to. Total support. Why shouldn't you have the right? But is that right actionable? Can it be translated? into policy and can it be delivered? And the, what Marissa highlighted, and it's, I think, just the start of a, a long-term trend, we're going to have this kind of conversation. What is long-term care? Who gets the right to it? Who stands in line first? What if the price of giving a bed to an able-bodied, sentient spouse of somebody in long-term care is to take that bed away from somebody on a waiting list who needs that bed themselves? So the policy details here and some of the contradictions as we try to execute on this very commendable sentiment, that's where it's going to come. And I think there's a host of other topics related to long-term care that we are just beginning to wrap our heads around. I commend the intent of the bill. But really, I think it's largely symbolic until you figure out how you can deliver on it. Okay, but let me just interject here, and then I'm sure you want to jump in too, Peter. But first, you have to consider, I mean, we're not just talking about two healthy couples that are being separated. 90% of people in long-term care or going into long-term care have some form of cognitive impairment. A majority of them have dementia. So we're talking, we're talking about couples 
that are ill. And, and when someone has dementia, how critically important it is to maintain some sort of familiarity is so critical to their quality of life. I remember with my own grandmother who had dementia, she was long divorced, but the my mother was the last person she forgot. And she, that was so integral and in, in terms of ensuring that she was calm, maintaining that, that positive quality of life in long-term care when she was there because that was the only person she recognized. Every caregiver that came into her room, even though they'd been caring for her for days, she would forget. For months, she forgot. She didn't know who they were. And so at the time of life when you are you know, entering into the state where your cognitive impairment is, is declining or has declined, how critically important it is to keep, particularly, for example, you know, if someone becomes agitated, having a family member there to keep them calm is so important. Yeah. It's so important. But the the question is like, um, like, like these, these long-term care homes aren't equipped to to house healthy people, you know, and nor should a a healthy person, like how how are they going to survive living, living with people who are you know, receiving food by like being spoon fed and like they're, they're just, they would be as out of their depth as, as uh, you know, a sick person is in in society. So like they they have to change the whole idea of of the long-term care home and, and sort of create a new thing where, you know, healthy people can mix with people who aren't so healthy, live in the same area, live in the same room, but under, under the current homes, it's not going to work. Like a healthy person cannot live, in a long-term care home. It just wouldn't work. Zoomer Magazine senior editor Peter Mugridge, Zoomer Media Vice President David Kravitz, and Marissa Lennox, Senior Policy Officer at CARP, A New Vision of Aging, our Fight Back Zoomer squad. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Since New Year's Day, OHIP has no longer provided any coverage for out-of-country travel. Previously, out-of-country inpatient services up to $400 a day was provided for higher levels of care and up to $50 a day for emergency outpatient and doctor services. CARP, a new vision of aging, points out there was not much consultation before the change, which is resulting in an increase in private insurance premiums. And a statement from the Canadian Snowbird Association, which has launched a legal challenge, says this not only impacts seniors traveling south for the winter, but anyone planning a family vacation. While filling in for Libby's Nimer, Bob Comsick was joined by Will McAleer, a spokesperson with Travel Health Insurance. Insurance Association, who offered his recommendations for travelers leaving Canada. We have sort of three golden rules that we would uh, would recommend. First of all, know your health. So know any conditions you've got before you sit down to do that application. And then know your policy. Have a good look at that. Ask your advisor or the insurance company, their toll-free numbers set up to help to make sure that any health concerns you've got are covered under that policy. And then know your trip. What type of trip are you going to take? And if you're planning on doing any of those high-risk activities, make sure it's covered under your policy. Being in the industry, were you surprised when this was proposed by the government, first of all? And were you involved in any of the consultations? A lot of people were critical of that, the fact that consultations lasted not even a week. Yeah, we were involved with some of the brief consultations, as you noted there, uh, and yeah, we were a little surprised when they when they made that announcement. Um, but that said, upon reflection, when you look at it, if 
Ontarians are, are really depending upon the coverage provided under OHIP for their for their travel insurance. That's when disappointment really does happen based on those uh, those small amounts of of reimbursement, as you mentioned. When you take a look at it, if if you, if you look on average, uh, uh, you know about five percent or so of of reimbursement. When you take a look at it, really from from our members, the insurers that are represented there, they make up their their rates pretty much once a year. And as a result, it'll take a while to, to have it work through the system. But given that it's only Ontario, that that cost then is, is then mitigated. And as a result, um, you know, increases should be, I would say, a fair bit less than that 5% because they're administrative costs. It was a challenging system for, uh, for insurers and providers to work with as well. So as a result, there'll be costs that won't be there. And uh, as a result, should be passed uh, to the consumer in terms of savings. Now, you talk about their costs uh, to providers as well. So what about in terms of the recommendation from the uh, Provincial Auditor General that uh, have a single reimbursement rate for all health services obtained outside of Canada as opposed to just, uh, you know, pulling the plug? It certainly would allow for uh, a more expeditious uh, approach to, to handling those cases, but at that point, what, where do you set that? And do you set it for for outpatient treatment? You just put a flat fifty dollars. Um, it'd be interesting to see some of those those types of solutions uh, put forward. Uh, but at this point, you know, just looking at, at what they've done, it, it appears to uh, appears to have been decided. Now, the Canadian Snowbird Association, uh, as you know, they were uh, opposed when the government proposed this last year. And then once this took effect, it was basically the day after, so January the 2nd, the association launched a a legal challenge against what the government uh, has done. And they feel, the association, Snowbird Association, feels that this is really breaking the law, the Canada Health Act, if you will. Now, being in the travel business and being involved with health coverage, does the association have a point here? I, you know, based on the, the amounts that they're that they're looking at, our, our position is is that you know, 1991 probably would have been the date to to have that discussion back when when they cut back from. Uh, from providing coverage to the limited amounts that we've seen and that we continue to see across the provinces. Heck, uh, when you take a look at a province like British Columbia with a maximum of $75, that certainly doesn't uh, doesn't go any way to uh, to allowing portability of your of your coverage. So, you know, like with the, the decision, I think that has that ship has long sailed. Right. It, it, it has not been the provincial programs have not been anywhere near uh, what would be required to be considered portable when you're traveling outside of the country. OK, then recapping. Number one, know your personal health. Secondly, know your insurance policy. Thirdly, know the type of vacation you're going on and get the proper coverage for that vacation, especially in light of the decision by the Ford government to uh, no longer have OHIP provide any coverage if you're traveling outside of the country. Is that basically wrap it up? That's it, exactly. I uh, couldn't have put it better myself. 
Will McAleer with the Travel Health Insurance Association. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. John Tory is promising this is going to be Toronto's decade. How will the city's mayor begin that process? He talked with Bob Comsick about his priorities during Monday's Fight Back. I'd say it's transit, housing, uh, community safety, and then uh, and community safety divided into two categories. One would be the, you know, the the real the, the threats to the safety of our city that we saw last year with the gun violence, and then also uh, sort of pedestrian uh, safety, and then finally mental health. Uh, just because I think that mental health is an overarching concern that um, spreads across so many areas of city life, homelessness, policing, and so on. Um, but Transit and housing are the bedrock uh, things we have to do. We ha- and, and by the way, a New Year's resolution, government-wise, is we've just got to speed both of those processes up. And they both involve a lot of intergovernmental cooperation. And I'm pleased to say that we're working well with the other governments on housing and transit. We've got to speed up all of our processes so that um, the transit projects you know, are visibly proceeding and the housing projects are visibly proceeding because we need them both uh, on a very urgent basis. Of the priorities that you listed, transit, affordable housing. You mentioned about community safety, which, of course, is more of a three-pronged priority for you in terms of uh, overall safety with guns, as you mentioned, uh, mental health. And then there's the pedestrian safety, of course, uh, Vision Zero, which you and Libby, who's off this week, have discussed many times uh, since you've been in in office. And what can people expect this year on, on that front? Just to refresh our memories. They can expect big changes, Bob, Uh, starting with something that's happened already this week, which is this new unit that, in fact, is restoring a unit that was done away with uh, before I was mayor back in, I think, 2012, of specific people to go to hotspots in the city to enforce the traffic laws against those who are putting people's lives at risk by driving carelessly. And that group is uh, on the job uh, this week, and they're going to be writing a lot of tickets uh, because that's what they're out there to do, write tickets uh, for people who are driving carelessly and without regard to pedestrian and others. They're going to see the introduction of photo radar in 50 places across the city. And as you know, those 50 places have already been identified, but we're not actually able to start issuing tickets until a 90-day period has passed under provincial regulation. But the 50 places people know now uh, where they are, they're going to see a continued uh, substantial increase in the number of red light cameras. They're going to see the continued implementation of intersection redesign and speed limit changes across the city because we simply have to do better than what we did last year, which was an unexpected acceptable number that was not heading fast enough towards zero. Uh, So uh, you're going to see a lot of changes this year, and a lot of it's going to have to do with enforcement, and I think that's good. And despite listing all these things pertaining to pedestrian safety, road safety that you've mentioned that are being done, that people can expect to see, why do I have a funny feeling you've got at least one or two other ideas that uh, are ruminating upstairs? Well, just because it's my nature uh, and because we've just got to continue to focus on these things. I mean, this is one of the most livable cities in the world. Um, You know, for all the problems we have, and I understand why people, you know, focus on the problems because that's what I'm focused on too, and it keeps me focused on them. But we have one of the most livable, blessed cities. We have tremendous boom going on here in terms of jobs coming to the city. We have a record of safety that is still uh, the envy of many, many other cities in North America. We have all kinds of things going for us, but 
my you know mantra these days is I want to protect that success and make sure it continues. And when we talked about at the beginning, this being Toronto's decade, there is no reason, given the uh, talent pool we have here, given the desirability people find from around the world to come and live in Toronto and make their living here, including lots of really smart people, why we can't be, as we are now, one of the most recognized global cities that people want to come to in the world. But we've got to keep at the community safety, keep at the affordable housing, make sure we have the transit, uh, make sure the city stays safe. Those, that's why those are my priorities, and make sure it's well-managed financially, uh, which I've tried to do throughout the time I've been here. So um, it, you always need to have new ideas to keep that going, but my objective is 10 years from today, and I'll be long gone from here by then, uh, is to make sure this is still one of the most livable, attractive cities for people to come to from around the world, because the decisions you make today are the ones that decide whether it will still be a great place to live and work uh, 10 years from now. Toronto Mayor John Tory in conversation with Bob Comsick this past Monday. This is the best of fight back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Should there be a term limit for Toronto City Councillors? One newcomer thinks yes, while a sophomore on council does not. Brad Bradford of Ward 19 Beaches East York introduced motions for staff to report to council with options for term limits. But the conversation was cut short as the motions did not receive enough support from his colleagues. Joining fill-in host Bob Comsick to discuss, Councillor Stephen Holliday and Councillor Brad Bradford. The numbers are very telling. If you if you look at incumbency re-election rates, uh, historically in Toronto, you go back 2014, the re-election rate was 97%. If you go back to 2010, the re-election rate was 85%. And it's a pattern that's very similar across Ontario. If you go back to 2003, we've had 103 ward races featuring incumbents since then, and only 13 challengers have ever been successful. And that's usually as a result of uh, a pr- pretty significant scandal. So, Many of our colleagues here put up their hands and, and enthusiastically support more diversity on council, um, you know, more, more gender balance, uh, diversity of age, ages across the council chamber, backgrounds, and yet when it comes to actually taking action to, to perhaps deliver on that promise, uh, very little has been done. So I was hoping that this was something that we could look at. Certainly when I talk to folks at the door, it's, uh, it's a popular idea. Um, but not something that uh, that council has been willing to even consider uh, to date so far. Councillor for Ward 2, Etobicoke Centre, Stephen Holliday. Why do you oppose term limits? Thanks, Bob. You know, it is something I've given some thought to because it has come up at council. But, you know, the, the opening thing that, that stands with me is, is, is this a solution in search of a problem? You know, we, we talk about these academic things around council, but... You know, Brad brought up this idea about incumbency and the advantages. Yes, it's true. When a councillor has been sitting for some time, uh, they have a track record in the community, and hopefully they have a track record of doing a good job. And it's my hope that if they're doing a bad job, voters will show them the door. And so why why get rid of somebody that is doing well for the community? And let's look at what a councillor does. In my opinion, three-quarters of a councillor's job is to serve constituents directly. It's to deal with miss garbage pickups, uh, snow plowing, dealing with development files. And if you're a good counselor, uh, you're responding to people that call you and getting the job done. Uh, you know, and the other thing that, that Brad brought up was, I guess, diversity on council. And I, I'm not sure you, you want to tell somebody, you know, um, I'm sorry, you've done your couple of terms, don't bother applying again. Um, we want 
somebody else. And elections are about the most fair process you can get. You show up with $100 and you register to become a candidate and the voters will decide. And there's nothing you can directly do to, to uh, make someone vote a certain way. At the end of the day, the voters make the right choice because that is what the population is empowered to do. And to start to tamper and limit with those processes, I think, is, um, is a very difficult thing uh, to tell voters that, you know, somehow council knows better that, you know, the, the current candidates are not diverse enough, so we're going to narrow your selection. And uh, I find that very frustrating. If we really agree um, that we do, and, and, and I mean, you know, Councillor Holliday may not share this view, but a lot of folks would like to see, you know, more, more women on council, for example, more LGBTQ candidates on council, uh, younger folks, older folks, uh, a real diversity and swath of, of a cross-section of Toronto. Um, and if you look at our council today, that's not necessarily the case. Uh, I think people do a lot of good work. Um, and that that good work uh, often translates into re-election, uh, but there's also been, and you know, you follow the files over the past couple decades. There's been there's been work that maybe isn't as good, and, and conversations that haven't been very productive, and different directions that the city's moved in that uh, that hasn't been positive. And yet, time and time again, we never fail to flood the chamber uh, with a slate of incumbents. Everybody comes back, and so when we look at Los Angeles, when we look at New York, uh, different big cities, you know, peer cities that, uh, that have examined electoral reform and landed on term limits, uh, what you end up seeing is, is uh, more diverse candidates running, more women getting on council, uh, more things getting done, moving bigger agendas, uh, because you're really focused, you know, nothing like a deadline to get things done. Uh, so you come in, you run on a couple big ideas, uh, and then you're really focused on delivering that, that work over the term. I think, you know, for sure it's been a steep le- learning curve for me over the past year, and I've been fortunate to work with a lot of folks here that have offered uh, guidance, mentorship, uh, and help along the way. But you also have to really stay focused on, on your priorities. And delivering that day-to-day service that Councillor Holiday talks about uh, is very important for residents, and that's something that they want us to take care of. But there are also bigger citywide issues and, and agendas that need to be moved forward. And those are the things that are often discussed in elections. Those are the big, new, bold, visionary ideas that come, come forward. Uh, and I think new voices are, are really important in, in bringing that stuff forward. Councillors Brad Bradford and Stephen Holliday. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the week. Keith called from Paris, Ontario, to say Americans should be supporting their president when it comes to fighting back against Iran. I think President Trump has put the fear of death into Iran. They know that when he hit the Somali, that he could hit anybody he wants. He retaliates only when he is threatened. And if they kill Americans, he's going to retaliate. And all I can say is he's cleaning up Obama's mess. But I'm glad it's him behind, ahead of the helm right now than any one of those Democrat misfits that are running for president. He's doing his best. They should back him, not run him down like like they are. But Kathy in Niagara Falls phoned to say she strongly disagrees with Donald Trump's decision to assassinate an Iranian general. He's been uh, putting all these sanctions on Iran because he's been trying to piss them off right from the beginning. 
And I don't think it's nice to assassinate anybody. To me, that's, that's kind of a cowardly way to do something. And uh, I just think that he's trying to take uh, away from all this impeachment stuff. He'll do anything to get people to stop thinking about the impeachment. And he deserves to be impeached. I can't stand the man. I wish they'd get rid of him. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Lorraine in Peterborough, who laid out what she sees as the priorities for Canada's next Conservative leader. When it comes to a candidate, it needs to be someone who can identify with Canadian voters, and Canadian voters can identify with that person. It needs to be someone who can put forth policies that can be met and the promise kept. For example, we need a national senior strategy. We're going to have a lot of seniors by the year 2035, and they tend to be the largest chunk of voters. And I don't see anything on the horizon in any of the parties in going in this direction. We also have the uh, national pharmacare issue. We have Medicare, but we don't have the pharmacare to to do it. So we need a leader who can push forward policies that will resonate with Canadians. And until the Conservatives can do that, they're going to have some stiff opposition from the other parties. That does it for today's Best to Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays at 416-360-0740 on Zoomer Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.